Father, it is my prayer this morning that you would speak, Lord, as we have sung. You would speak through your word. Pray that I would not get in the way. I pray that despite my failings, your word would not fail. Prepare our hearts even now, O Lord, that we might be humble before your word. May we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I believe that as we touched on these issues in these verses this morning, that we'll see why James cautioned his readers not to anger in the face of your word. Father, I believe that the truths contained here this morning are sufficient to change lives, to restore marriages, to turn people's lives around. And Father, I pray that you would do that for those who are gathered here, for those watching on live stream, for those who watch this at a later date. May you supernaturally, miraculously, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change lives through the preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. James chapter 4. You know, when we started the book of James, this was the bit I was like, oh boy, this is going to be interesting. So here we are. I've been praying this week for... You guys, and for myself, uh, funnily enough, uh, Jenny and I, was it Sunday night or Monday? Monday. It was like, so often on a, a Sunday I'll be preaching and I'll be like, man, I've just, Lord, you've made me live this stuff out during the week. And we were joking on this last Sunday, we really don't want to have to live this out in the week. And then on Monday, there was, a, there was a brief moment of conflict or tension between us. And I was like, okay, James chapter 4, let's, let's do this now so that God doesn't have to crush us on Sunday morning. But nonetheless, I imagine that uh, we'll all be crushed. This, this is really where the rubber hits the road. We saw last week when we dealt with the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, as I said, and as we spoke about last time, and I'm not going to rehash all of it, but as we saw last time, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, is the peak of the book, rhetorically speaking. That after asking these, um, going through these series of commands addressed to the brothers and sisters, you know, he says, count it all joy, brothers, and do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Know this, my beloved brothers. Brothers, show no partiality. There's just... Brothers do this, brothers do that. There's this, this constant repetition. And then we have this change at the end of chapter 3 where we come to this peak and he asks this question in chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? <clears throat> and again, as we said last time, out of context, that could just be somebody asking about, hey, what, what do you know? And, and we see in the flow of James, it really doesn't mean that at all. The question about wisdom is a question about living. And, and the issue is this. Which among you have chosen to live for Christ? Which among you are, are walking the way that you should? It all goes back to the very beginning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. When, when we go through trials, we should consider it joy because we see how God is using that to bring maturity into our lives. And then when he's brought that maturity into our lives, we lack nothing. Do you lack wisdom? Is that how you're living? That you're looking at trials and difficulties in the context of God's greater purposes and his greater work? 
And so wisdom is really the way in which we live. And he warns at the beginning of chapter 1 that we should ask for that wisdom, but we have to ask in faith. And he introduces this central theme of the book of double-mindedness, literally double-souled. That so many of us are there saying, I want Jesus. I'm a Christian. I want to follow you, Jesus. I'll go wherever you go. But really, we don't want to. Really, we want to have a life without trials. We want to have a life of comfort. We want to have a life where we get to do the things that we want to do. Where we're not convicted over the things that we, that we want to do. Where we, where we can not have too many troubles or problems. And indeed, there are so many churches, churches, that have been set up that really only exist to try and just encourage that way of thinking. Your best life now. Get what you want. And we, and we look at those churches and rightfully we reject their teaching. But how far away are we when we look at trials as something that's terrible in every sense? When we can't see the purposes of God. And when we just really, ultimately, at the end of the day, want to live lives that are comfortable and cozy. And so throughout the book of James, he's been addressing this very kind of partisan way of looking at it. You're either living for Christ or you're living for yourself. You either have the wisdom that comes from above or you have the wisdom that is earthly. And in chapter 3, all of this came to a summary. And he said, Who is wise in understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be, do not boast and be false to the truth. Ultimately, wisdom is seen in meekness. Seen in humility. And the contrast of that we saw in verse 14 was the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. If you've got selfish ambition, if your goal in your life is you, if, if, if we want, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, I want all the girls, the gold and the glory. The three G's, you know. It's not, it's not just that. It's a case of, do I want a life of comfort? Do I want to be devoid from trials? Do I want everything to work out for me? If, if that's your goal, if that's selfish ambition, James is saying, don't, don't boast in that. Don't, don't glory in that. That's the opposite of humility and you don't have the heavenly wisdom. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Notice the repetition of jealousy. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and the selfish ambition again repeated, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When our goal is us, then the floodgates open for us to do whatever we want, to justify our sin, to justify our thinking. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Notice the word peace there, it's going to become important. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, reference back to chapter 2, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace is there three times. Peaceable, peace, peace. And that was really the end of chapter 3 and the end of that summary statement of what James has been talking about through the whole book. Are any of you wise and understanding? Do you have that humility that has been forged through trials, that has beaten the jealousy and the selfish ambition out of your hearts, that you have now become a person of peace, that can help then create peace amongst those around you. And this is the central idea that we now bring into chapter 4. This concept of peace. Because if you are a double-souled person, if you want Jesus but you want yourself, 
If you say, well, I want to follow the Lord, I want to know my word, I want to grow in Christ, I want to live for him, but at the same time you're thinking, I want an easy life, I don't want troubles, I don't want trials, I want to be able to do the things that I want, I don't want to be convicted of things that I want to do. And if you want those things, then that, my friends, is somebody who, let me just use James's words so you don't think I'm just me saying it, that's someone who is is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Or as James says in chapter 3, that is a person who is open to disorder in every vile vile practice. In other words, you're not a person of peace. There is a tension that exists in your own heart, in in, in your own soul, Because you're fighting with yourself. I want Jesus. I want me. I want Jesus. I want me. And and you are constantly fighting against yourself every day. Lord, make me holy. Lord, help me be sanctified. Help Help me live for you. Oh, let me just get on and do this. Oh Lord, take away this trial and this problem. And, and, and we're just constantly having this, this warring within our hearts because we're trying to serve Christ and serve ourselves. And so James at the end of chapter 3 says that there is a harvest of righteousness that comes with the wisdom from above and it's sown in peace by those who make peace. That this emphasis on peace is because here in the congregation we can create peace only when we've accomplished peace in our own hearts by determining for whom we are going to live. That's the basis of chapter 4. And that's why I spent the time just reminding ourselves. Now this is, this is huge, guys. If you're married, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you may have experienced conflict. <laughs> All the married people laughing. <laughs> Good response, yes. You know what I'm talking about. If you are a parent, you may have experienced conflict. If you have a parent, you may have experienced conflict. We, we know what it's like to have quarrels and fight. So when, when James begins chapter 4 and says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It doesn't matter that this was written 2,000 years ago. It wouldn't really matter if it was written 10,000 years ago. It doesn't matter who it's written to or when it's written. That is as relevant as relevant is ever going to be, right? Because people are always having conflicts and quarrels and arguments. And James is saying, what causes them? Now notice how this is linked to the previous section. He's not back to the, to do this brothers. But chapter 3 and verse 13 began with a question, not a command. Who is wise in understanding among you? Chapter 4 begins with a question, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? You see the connection between the two passages? This is following on. And if you want to hear the sort of the kind of technical um, grammatical thing here, some would describe the previous section as being the thematic peak. This is what James is talking about. This is how the book is summarized, end of chapter 3. Whereas in the beginning of chapter 4 is really, I'm trying to put it in more non uh, theological terms, but it's really the peak of the commands. It, it, it is, it is, here's your thematic peak. Here's what the book of James is about. How then does that impact our lives? What do we do in light of that? That's what we're doing here. And so the issue has been, you need to have wisdom from above, not wisdom from the earth. If you have, if, if there's wisdom from above that's from God and wisdom from the earth that is, that is demonic, then that's why there's no peace in your heart as you try and reconcile those two things. It's like trying to mix oil and water. It's not going to happen. But when you do have that, then you can sow this peace through the righteousness in your lives. So this is leading us on, this talk of peace, to the idea of quarrels and fights among you, that repetition of among you. Okay, big reveal. 
If if you've ever been in conflict with a person on a regular basis, for all you married couples out there, here's the big secret, okay? It's not really a secret, it's been written here for a couple of thousand years, but here it is. What is it that causes quarrels and causes fights among you? And just a warning as we do this, you're not going to like this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war among you? Sorry, within you, repeating from the previous clause. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's exactly what we've been talking about in the end of chapter 3. I want Jesus. I want me. I want to serve God. I don't want to have to do that. Your passions are at war within yourself. If you're at war within yourself, how can you have peace with anybody else? Right? It's like, you know, it's like, I keep having conflict with these people. I I have no idea why it's happening. And there's this war raging within you. Oh, that might be why it's happening. You know? (coughs) And so the reason that there are quarrels and conflicts among you corporately is because there is a war going on there's a quarrel there's conflict going on within you individually that's the issue your passions are at war within you so the reason for the conflicts externally is the conflict internally now let me just before we move on and explain that further which James conveniently does for us Let me just make this principled point here right now. If if you've ever been in or, you know, done any marital counseling, you will know that there is one absolutely unavoidable truth when you deal with a couple in conflict. And that is this. It's their fault. So if if you're the husband and you're in conflict with your wife, it's her fault. If you're a wife and you're in conflict with your husband, it's his fault. It's always the other person's fault. That's why there's conflict, right? It's because of them. What's James doing here? He's pointing it inwards. And I, and honestly, in my experience in, in pastoral ministry, this is the crux in saving marriages. It's just down to this. You come in for counselling and you're pointing outwards. And the one thing that the counsellor has to do, that the pastor has to do, is to get you to take that finger and point it back. And if you're prepared to do that, particularly if both people are prepared to do that, then we're going to work this out. But if you're not prepared to do that, what can you do? And that goes way beyond the confines of marriage. If there's any conflict, all you can do is deal with yourself. You can't deal with anybody else. That's why there's no verse in the Bible that says, husbands get your wives to submit to you. (laughs) Although sometimes I feel like half of the evangelical church believes that. It doesn't. It says wives submit to your husbands. The command is to them, not to you. Your job is to love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see? And and, and the problem is, is that we seem to think that we are somehow responsible for other people's behavior. We're not. We can only deal with the fighting, the passions, the wrestling within our own hearts. That's all we can deal with. Everybody else has got to deal with their issues and their conflicts. So the, the reason for the quarrels among you is that the passions are at war within you. And so he, he just points it back at us. Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now this is astonishingly important, incredibly profound, and easily missed. You desire and you do not have. 
If you can understand what James is saying here, this is life-changing just in that one phrase. In the context of quarrels and fights, what's the issue? The issue is you want something and you don't have it. Always. 100% of the time, that's the problem. You want something and you don't have it. You say, no, that's not my problem. He did this. She did that. That's my problem. Okay, so you wanted them not to do what they did. Yes, so, okay, you desired something, you don't have it. That's the problem. Oh, but, 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 this, but I'm fine, but this person was really horrible to me. They treated me terribly. Did you want that? No. Did you get it anyway? Yes. Oh, you desired something, you don't have it. There you are, conflict. I mean, it's that simple, isn't it? it, it that's, that's revolutionary for some people. When that clicks in your mind and you get that, that is, that is literally life-changing. Every single conflict comes from you wanting something and not having it. This is why I think that sometimes, you know, sometimes the worst people to kind of counsel marriages are people who don't fight. <laughs> you know? I can remember being at church years ago, and there was this couple, and they'd been married. I mean, they must have been married for five or ten years at that point. Oh, no, we've never had a fight. And it's like, okay, that's wonderful for you, but I need you to understand that that degree of compatibility is absolutely bizarre. And none of us can relate to you, and we, we, we congratulate you. Hallelujah, praise God. Just don't ever get involved in marital counseling ever, because you, you just don't have a clue. And, and the reason that you get these, these absolutely bizarre couples that never have any conflict is that it's like, hey darling, what do you want to watch tonight? I want to watch this show. Do you know what? That's exactly the same show I want to watch. Where do you want to go and eat? I want to go and eat there. Where do you want to eat? Do you know? That's amazing. That's where I want to eat too. When there's agreement, then there is never a need for submission. There's never a need to sort of sacrifice and love. <laughs> There's just agreement. And so you never get to experience the, oh, well, I don't want to watch that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have to deal with it this way. I don't agree with that decision. You have to, you, you have to get to this point for there to be conflict where there's something that you desire and you don't have it. And it can be something incredibly shallow and unimportant, like what you want to watch on TV or where you want to go and eat. Or it could be something absolutely fundamental, like I don't want to be treated like a piece of dirt. Or I don't want to be treated in a, in, in a way that, 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 that crushes me. And I don't want to be, to be taken for granted. I don't want to be ignored. These kind of things that are, that are actually quite huge. I do not want to be sinned against in that horrific way. So I'm not belittling anything. I'm not saying that this pain and this, this, this sadness that, that often happens isn't real. I'm simply saying when there's conflict, it comes about because you desire something, not to be treated that way, and you don't have it. It's always the case. Always. And so, with that understanding, he says, you don't have it, so you murder. <laughs> that seems a little strong. You say, well, by great self-control, I haven't got there yet. James routinely in this book, as we know, we've mentioned it many times, is kind of alluding back to Sermon on the Mount. You'll know the passage of the Sermon on the Mount, that the Bible tells you not to murder. The law, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is essentially exegeting the Mosaic law in contrast to the Pharisaic understanding that the people were familiar with. And, and, and he points to the law that says, thou shalt not murder. And he was saying, look, the law says don't murder, but if you're going around and you're like, angry with people, the fact that you haven't literally killed them, doesn't mean that you haven't broken the spirit of that law, that you haven't, that you failed to be instructed by that law in how you should treat and think about other people. 
So James is simply, I think, referencing that. So what he's saying is this. You desire and don't have, so there is murderous intent. Literally, there's, there's, there's hate in your heart. In other words, why is there conflict? Because there's hate in your heart. Why is there hate in your heart? Because there's something you want and you don't have it. And you're allowing that lack of what you want to create within you hatred. And that's how you deal with it. Because, because the reality is this. If, if, if you want something and you don't have it, there doesn't need to be a conflict. You can say, okay, I want that, but I don't have it. The problem is, is that we want something, we don't have it, and so hatred, anger, animosity grows in our hearts. Anyone getting convicted yet? Because I know I am. I mean, that's how we work, is it not? I haven't got what I want, so now I'm not happy about that. Now there's this kind of building up of this anger and animosity. And so he says, you desire, you do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Some classic Hebrew parallelism there, isn't there? The idea that you're coveting, you want something, you can't get it, so you fight and you quarrel. Essentially, these two phrases are communicating the same thing. (coughs) And so, we really have, and I hope that I've communicated this well enough, we really now should understand the heart of every quarrel. The heart of every quarrel, there's something we want, we don't have it, there's something we want to get, we can't get, and so what's happening is there's animosity brewing, and that then leads to fights and quarrels and struggles and conflicts and what have you. That's the reality of it. Now look at the last phrase. You do not have because you do not ask. Oh, phew! Brilliant, you say, oh, that's wonderful. Okay, here, here I was, I was worried, Pastor, but you were going to say that the, the, the outworking of this is that you don't have what you want and, and that's just tough. Oh, I get to ask and then I get it. Brilliant, everything's all right again. Everything's good with the world. Okay, so um, this person is treating me badly and I don't like that. I don't want them to treat me badly. Lord, I'm asking, give me what I want, make that person treat me better, because that will resolve all the conflict that's going on here. Amen. Uh, Lord, amen. Oh, in Jesus' name, I forgot the abracadabra. And yet, no, no, we've still got conflict. Okay, maybe we've got to go to verse 3. You ask, yeah, I did, that was right, we just did that. And do not receive. Aha, that was the problem. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. <clears throat> In other words, this. When you ask God to give you what you wanted, watch this, this is profound. You did it because you wanted it. Deep, huh? When you, when you said, God, give me this because I want it, the reason that you did that was because that you wanted it. You're thinking, he's, he's lost it here. But that's what James is saying. He's saying, when you asked for something, the problem is, is that you asked it because of the passions in you that desired it and you wanted it. And here you are thinking, yeah, That's why I ask, what's the problem here? The problem here is this, is that the problem back at the start, beginning, verse 1, was your passions. And all you're doing is feeding your passions and fueling your passions for asking for your passions to be, to be satisfied. You, you, the, the the problem here, and, and I really want us to understand this, the problem here is not that your passions aren't being met. The problems here is your passions. Period. You see, but I just don't want to be treated badly. Okay. This is what James is all about. Does it matter more to you that you're treated well? Or does it matter more to you that God is glorified? Does it matter more to you that you get to live how you want? Or does it matter more to you that Christ is glorified? 
Does it matter more to you that your life goes well and you get what you want? Or does it matter more to you that God works his purposes out in your life, even through terrible trials, that you might be changed and grow in wisdom and lack nothing? Because one way is selfish ambition and the other way is the wisdom that comes from above. That's the problem here. Can you see how all of these issues of conflict in chapter 4 is based on the end of chapter 3? Do you see that? Because it's not okay. The, the, the problem isn't, oh, I want to be, I don't want to have to suffer. I want to be treated well. I don't want to have to have these problems in my life. So I'm going to ask for you to take them away. And what James is saying is something that most Christians don't understand and do not even want to understand. Which is all that you're doing is asking for the things that you want in your selfish heart. Because you want to have a life that fulfills your selfish ambition. You want to have a life that gives you comfort. And the world all revolves around you rather than it revolving around Christ. Told you it'd be brutal. And I think that this, more than any other part of the book, in my opinion, just exposes that double-mindedness. You can go through chapter 1 and say double-minded, double-souled. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be like that. But I think by the time you get to chapter 4, you go, oh, man, that's me. That's me. Because... Conflict in a relationship can be an opportunity to stand on your soapbox and say, I won't be treated this way. Or it can be an opportunity to say, Lord, use this trial to crush my selfish heart, to tear apart my pride, and to create in me a new heart. A new life, a new way of thinking. Where my focus is on glorifying you. Not on satisfying myself. That's it. Or do we not understand what Jesus meant when he said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And where did he go that we must follow? To Calvary via Gethsemane. And so, we do not have, because we do not ask. When we do ask, we don't receive because we are wrongly to spend it on our passions. Our, our, our motivation in our prayer is, to use a theological term, anthrocentric. It's all about us. And again, we can look at the worst of churches. We can look at the, the Joel Osteens of the world and we can, we can look at the the um, the narcissist type of interpretations that come out of places like Furtick down at Elevation and places like that where where everything's you know in the, every Bible sermon is all about you and how wonderful you are and how precious you are and how you should get what you want and hey you're a king's kid and rah 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 and all of that you know and we can look at that and we can say oh yeah we're not like that but we are. That's exactly what we're like. We're just not as, we're not just not as blatant. And we don't do it. We, we're not so, in, so ignorant of it that we kind of parade it in front of everybody. But is that not the same thing that we wrestle with in our own hearts every time there is conflict and fights and problems? This, this fact that we're not happy. We're not getting what we want. And I want us as a church to understand this because this, friends, is how we progress, is how we mature as a church. Over this last year with coronavirus and what have you, there's been a lot of people that's left us and many of them have left us because just very simply, in their own words, they haven't got what they wanted. 
And, and the sad thing is, is that's basically like going out the door and shouting, you say, what's the problem? The problem is that I'm immature. Boom, slam the door. Because that's, that's how James defines it. That is earthly wisdom. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic to basically say, I want my own way, I'm not getting my own way, wah, wah, wah. And we can laugh about it and joke about it like it's something, but is that not the, is that not the very essence of struggle within our own hearts? That every day we have to, we have to have this, this, this decision that it's not about me. It's not about my selfish ambition, what I want, no matter how, how much I justify it, no matter how reasonable I make it, no, no, no matter how badly I'm being treated, but rather we say, I need to live for Christ, whatever cost that brings. You know what we have become experts in? The modern evangelical church in this land. We've become experts in justifying selfish ambition. Spiritualizing selfish ambition. This is truth that is utterly brutal to our proud hearts. But it's truth that will change your lives forever. Wisdom that comes from above is meek and humble. And it creates a peace within you as you put aside your selfish ambition so that there is a peace within you so then when you go into the Christian community that you can create peace among you corporately because there's not the fight within you for your own way So when you come to be with others, you don't bring that conflict into your relationship with them as well. And that is what heavenly wisdom looks like. That's what it looks like. Not how many Bible verses you've got memorized. Not how many years you've been to church. Not whether you've got a bumper sticker on your car with a fish on it. Not whether you listen to enough worship music or the right kinds of worship music. But rather it's this. Humility. That comes from slaying your selfish ambition. And accepting that you aren't going to get what you want. And accepting that when you treat people badly all you can control is your response. And that your selfishness is going to drive you to conflict. And you are responsible to putting that to death. And the person treating you badly, God is blessing you through them by giving you an opportunity to once again put to death the sin within you. That, my friends, is Christianity. Don't like it? Just don't pretend. Walk away. Because we, if we stay and compromise, we, we compromise everybody else around us. We've got to be living for Christ. That doesn't mean we're perfect. We've got to work out all this, this stuff in us and the sins that we struggle with and the sins we may not even be aware of. But this decision has to be made. Who do we live for? Now next week we're going to pick up in verse 4, but I want to look at it now. Because it's like a bridge. But this is another one in those multiple episodes that we've had of verses I know very well, but oh my goodness, don't they look different in context. Let's have a look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you know what? I knew that verse when I'd been a Christian, literally, you know, my first year or two as a Christian. I can remember, I got saved at the age of 12. I can remember at like 13, 14 years of age, you know, reading various kind of Christian literature, some really poor stuff that was aimed at teenagers in particular. And even in the midst of, of a very overly simplistic, not very doctrinally sound, basic Christian education, even I knew this verse. 
And I must have heard this verse preached a hundred times. And in almost every case, it's, it's taken out of context and it's used to mean this. Hey guys, you mustn't be worldly. So you know what? Look like a Christian, dress like a Christian, be like a Christian. Don't watch this stuff. Don't look at that stuff. Don't be worldly. Be Christian-y. That's got nothing to do with the context of this passage, even remotely. When he says, you adulterous people, what he's doing is this. He, like me, recognizes how brutal those first three verses are. And then rather, this is maybe where I'm getting it wrong a little bit, and then say, hey guys, I know this is really hard for you. He just goes, see, you're adulterous. And just think for a minute the imagery he's using. You're a cheat. You are like a spouse that's sleeping around. You claim that you are Christ's, and yet you're harboring selfish ambition in your heart. You want what you want, and you fight with other people because you don't get what you want. And you aren't prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because you want to have a comfortable and cozy life. And then you claim you're a Christian. And you say, I'm all about Jesus. When really, if somebody wrongs you, if somebody offends you, if someone treats you badly, you're out the door. Or you're shouting, or you're upset, or you're angry, or whatever. Adulterer. That's what he's saying in context. And so when he says... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Where in this context has he been speaking about worldliness in the way that Christians think about it? In the sense of, you know, watching the wrong TV program or reading the wrong kind of book or hanging out with the wrong kind of people. That's not what he's talking about. When he's talking about worldly, what has he said in context that he's talking about worldly? Well, how about where he said, but the... The wisdom, sorry, verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. That's the world he's referring to. What he's saying is this, he says you're adulterous because you claim to want the wisdom from above, but really you're kind of, you know, I was going to use an English expression that you maybe didn't understand there, um, making nookie, I don't know, (laughs) you know, you're having uh, adulterous relationships with the wisdom that's from the earth. Here you are saying, I want heavenly things, but you're cuddling up with the demonic. You see how strong James's terminology is? He's saying to us, The worldliness is not, as Christian culture has been preaching for decades, all about watching the wrong thing or reading the wrong thing or hanging out in the wrong thing or what have you. you Because the problem with that kind of teaching is that the remedy for it is to be more Christian, you know? Whenever people preach worldliness, the solution is get rid of those records from your record collection don't watch that TV show. Don't hang out in that place or those people and, and, and sit in church and, and wear the right clothes and look the right way. And it's all external. Man, you want to know how to not look worldly? Go and look at the Mormons. They've got that down to a T. So fortunately, they don't have, they don't have salvation because they don't believe in the gospel. Now you see, worldliness is this. That we say we want Christ when we want comfort. Worldliness is this when we can't consider it joy when we go through trials of many kinds. I'm not saying we have to enjoy it. I'm not saying there won't be tears. I'm not saying there won't be weeping. I'm saying that we can't count it, consider it, recognize in the midst of the tears, God is working his purposes here. And so... (coughs) These words, I hope, have shaken us. These words have shaken us. And when we understand the first three verses, what's our response to verse four? You adulterous people. 
Do you say, not me? Or do you say, Lord, I'm sorry for being unfaithful. That's where this text has to take us. That's what James is doing here. Man, James would not go down well on social media, would he? You're too harsh. You can't say that kind of stuff. Shouldn't you be more gentle? But he's forcing the issue here. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you see how he brings the whole thing full circle? He says, there's not peace within you. So there's no peace with others. Because ultimately you're fighting God. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us as Christians to understand. For us to accept. Is that when... When we say... That's not okay that I'm treated this way by person X. That's not okay that life circumstances bring, bring me to this situation. I'm not happy with this. And there's this internal conflict that is impacted by circumstances that ultimately the person we're not happy with is God. Because God is sovereign and he allows these things to happen. And he allowed that person to treat you that way. And he brought that person into your life. And he allowed these circumstances to happen. And he allowed that person to become sick. And he allowed this thing to happen in your life. And he allowed this, 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 this situation to come upon you. And he allowed for all of his trials. And he allowed for all of his trauma. Do you still bow? Or are you at enmity with God? Do you still worship him? Though he might beat you. That's the question. Because we have to make this decision. When God in his sovereignty gives us stuff we don't want has our selfish ambition being crucified with him? Are we at peace within ourselves? Are we at peace with God? Or do we want to canoodle with the world? Do we want to do things their way? Embrace that way of thinking? And let me tell you, let me end with this fun fact. Next time you get into a fight with your spouse, that's your opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to say, conflict, quarrel. I know, I know, I've read this. We did this in James 4. I know what's going on here. The problem right now is I'm not getting what I want. That's the problem. Not them. Can't control that. The problem is I'm not getting what I want. I can ask God to give me what I want, but if I do so, am I going to do so because I want it? Or am I going to do so because I'm seeking the glory of God? It's a very, very big step to go from, Lord, may my spouse treat me better, to Lord, may my spouse be sanctified with the right heart. And our wicked proud hearts can can make those two things look very similar and sometimes we can say the right words with the wrong heart we have to be brutal with ourselves in separating these things out so when we come into conflict with our spouse with our children with with people at work with whomever with people at church when we when we have told things we don't like when we're treated badly that is our opportunity God is shining a spotlight on our selfish ambition. And we have to decide, do I want the wisdom from above that is meek and humble? Do I walk in the footsteps of Christ in the face of this treatment? Or am I really in love with the world?
and the world's way of dealing with these circumstances. Let's pray. Let's repent. Let's rise up and live differently. Father, my prayer this morning is astonishingly simple but incredibly important. Firstly, may our hearts be convicted by your word. More specifically, might your Holy Spirit convict us by your word. That we might see our sin And secondly, Lord, seeing our sin, may we be repentant. Father, we repent of the conflict that we've caused within our own hearts and the hearts of others. Because we wanted our own way. Because of our selfish ambition. Because we seek after ourselves. Father, we repent on how we've cheated on you. Where we've said we are yours and we love you and we follow you. And yet we've demanded our own way. We've sought after our own comforts. We're more concerned about being comfortable and getting our own way than we are about you removing the pride from our hearts. Forgive us, Lord. But Lord, lift us up. And may we go from this place committed to living a godly life, a faithful life, a life that says, I will live for him and not for me. I pray that the text today would have changed many lives. I pray that you would receive all the glory. Amen.